hope you have a Bible, and if you do, 2 Corinthians 5 is our text tonight. I, I tell you, if you can't tell by the last couple of weeks, just the, the energy and the, and the focus that we've given to these passages. Some of my favorite passages of Scripture are 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Um, I don't believe there is a greater message of hope than the one that is in front of us tonight. Uh, are there challenges in this text? Yes. Does it disrupt our way of life in some way? Uh, yes. Uh, but is there the ultimate message of hope in front of us? Absolutely. Um, so I, 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 there's a reason you hear this passage at funerals. Uh, there's a reason you hear this passage when things are looking bleak for people. Um, but we shouldn't wait to read this passage when it is the end of our lives. We should read this passage and let it guide us throughout our lives. Uh, we don't know when our end may come. It may come tonight. It may come uh, decades from now. Nonetheless, though, we ought to always live as if it could be. Uh, imminent. And the truth of the matter is, chapter 5 is probably the quintessential passage. If you want to be prepared, not just to die, but if you want to be prepared to live, prepared to live in this life like every single day matters for eternity, this chapter might be the one that you want to bookmark and highlight the most. So we're coming off of, of, of uh, uh, previously, uh, of, a, of an amazing chapter in and of itself. Uh, verses 7 through 18 of chapter 4 are so powerful, yet they seem contrary to how most of us see the world. Uh, chapter 4 is all about um, not being dismayed at the hardships of this life, but rather rejoicing in those hardships, knowing that they're working something greater in us, and through those things we are seeing the resurrection life of Christ come to us and, and be lived out through us. Uh, but again, that chapter and that passage is completely contrary to how most of us see the world. But, but I got to say, if you thought that passage was crazy, then chapter 5 is going to be off the charts. Uh, but if we can buy into what chapter 4 set before us, then chapter 5 will be one of the most comforting, hope-filling passages that you ever read. I, I don't think that's overselling the text at all, but uh, just to kind of set the stage for us, chapter 4 is essentially an invitation. It's an invitation uh, to see ourselves for who we really are, uh, to see our world for what it really is, and redefine how we see and react to this life. And at first, it may seem as if this invitation is, is, is negative or it's, 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 a, it's a gloomy way to live, but, but all, quite the contrary uh, when we dig into it. But we're told in chapter 4 that we are jars of clay. That Paul says that that's how we should see ourselves. We are jars of clay. That's all we will ever be in this life. We are breakable, fragile, fallen creatures. We live in a world that is beyond fragile. It is broken in so many ways. The world is not as God intended it to be, just as we are not as God intended us to be. We are jars of clay in a fallen, broken world. Now, our, world, our response to this unfortunate reality has, to, has been, historically, and in our nature, our response has been to repair things the best we can, to numb the pain and surround ourselves with as many buffers and barriers as we can to create the illusion of peace, prosperity, and longevity. We have done a pretty good job at creating a world 
that's really an imaginary world and, and bind into all the fantasies this world tries to sell us. We leap from one high to another, yet sometimes we miss. Sometimes those highs aren't as high as we thought they would be. They don't materialize as we expect them to be. And we stumble and we crash and we fall. And, and we're often a miserable pile of nerves and emotions as a result. Deep inside every one of us, again, we're jars of clay, we're breakable, we're, we're fragile, we're, we're, we're full of cracks. Every one of us has a longing for better that is so intense and so heavy, but rather than taking a better way, a lot of us just repeat the cycle, as in the general human race, right? As in people that don't have faith, even some that do. That even though we know there's something greater out there or we long for something greater, a lot of us, most people, just repeat the cycle, trying to find something to, to numb the pain or, or, or to create a fantasy, illusion uh, of reality to which we feel like things are okay or that things are getting better or that things are as they need to be or as good as they can be. We just repeat the cycle again and again and again, and it's really a shame. Although some seem to overcome it, some shore up for themselves riches and pleasures untold, deep down the question still remains in every heart. Have I made enough? Have I experienced enough? Will this be enough? Will this last? What if something threatens to take it away? And it's so odd, isn't it, that the most successful people, the most protected people, the most uh, invulnerable, or people that seem to be invulnerable, as in they really can't lose enough to really harm their lives. They really can't. They've got so much, and they made so much, and they've done so well. They really can't, you know, be affected by the, the things in this world that, that, that try to take them down. Uh, but isn't it true that even the most successful, protected people, they are some of the most insecure people? Maybe you know what this feels like. They worry about all the things that might take away that sense of peace that they've obtained through the material and, and, and physical barriers that they've gotten. And that's the thing about believing that this world is anything but fallen. The, the minute we believe this world is a firm foundation, the minute we believe in the institution of this world, the minute we buy into the fantasy and the illusion, uh, the minute we believe this world is anything but fallen, the minute we believe that we aren't simply jars of clay, that illusion only produces a letdown. So what is this chapter inviting us to do? It's inviting us to accept that this world will never be perfect. It's not our forever home. And it invites us to choose to seek what God is actually up to in our lives. Because God isn't about creating a, a reality here and now that is comfortable or easy. And he doesn't promise to safeguard us from the cracks and the pitfalls in this life. Rather, he intends on using those things that, that often cause us to, to, to be mournful or, or, or be in pain or, or to be overwhelmed. He uses those things to bring about the best in us. To prepare us for a better world to come. That word prepare is a big emphasis tonight. So yes, we are jars of clay, but that's not an insult to you. We didn't ask to be jars of clay. We weren't made to be jars of clay. That's what happened because of the fall. So yes, we are jars of clay, but that's a result of the fall. The truth is God loves each and every one of us jars of clay because we bear his image, but behind, beneath those cracks... Dust off all the grime and all, the, uh, all that's covered us is the image of God. And as vessels, yes, we may leak. Yes, we may, things may spill. But as vessels, we can bear his surpassing power. Even though it, on paper, we shouldn't be able to. 
because we're broken and we're fragile and we're fallen, we shouldn't be able to contain the power of God. But that's the point. All the glory goes to God because in our weakness, we can contain the power of God. So that's how God chooses to take on our fallen world. Through seas that seem unpart, beyond the ability to part. When giants tower over us, when crosses appear to only bring pain and suffering, God has a redemption plan. But more importantly, God has a redemption process. This is how God works in the world. Not through exaltation, but through endurance, as in giving us the ability to endure through whatever we face. Now, the thing is, we resist this process, don't we? We resist this process because we're convinced, and here's why you resist it. Here's why we resist it. We're convinced that this life is the best there is. But don't you see that resisting this process and believing that lie is an act of unbelief? You see, the Christian faith is one that trusts what God is doing, that has confidence in God's plans, his will and his way as superior to ours. And that's what Paul it's telling us when he writes uh, in chapter 4 about us being hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Cast down, but not, uh, not destroyed. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Though we seem to be bearing the body of Jesus, the, the cross of Jesus, though we seem to be dying in this flesh, we are actually working our way towards life as our flesh wastes away. Our spirits are being built up. We are being worn down on the outside, but on the inside, we are being renewed day by day. And that's why Paul says confidently, we know, we know that the resurrection life of Jesus is raising us up against the tide of sin in the fallen world, that God is working something in us. And that's why he says at the end of chapter 4, Verse 16, 17, and 18, verses I encourage you to highlight and memorize. That's why he says, we do not lose heart. Though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now listen, a lot of us don't want to admit the fact that we are perishing. A lot of us don't want to admit the fact that we are jars of clay that crack and break. But that's who we are. And until we accept that, we aren't going to experience what God is doing inside of us. That he's renewing us day by day. And yes, we may bear an affliction in this life. But that light affliction is not comparable to the weight of glory that God is working on our behalf and through our lives. And in verse 18, Paul invites us not to look at what we see, but to look at what we cannot see. Now, it's hard to look at what you can't see because you can't see it, right? Which should give you a teaser that there's got to be a different approach. And that's the invitation, to look past the surface, to look deeper at what God is doing. And this has made it clear, this passage has made it clear what he's doing. He's preparing us for eternity, and that's the process of redemption. That all of our lives follow the road of Calvary. All of our lives, we bear a cross. We set our affections and expectations on our resurrection, on our heavenly eternal home as we bear that cross because we know that that's not going to be the end. Now, if this seems hard to accept, that's because we are natural in our minds. We have a fleshly nature. The natural mind, the fleshly mind cannot accept this. And that's why 99% of the world doesn't accept this. And that's why a lot of Christians don't accept this. 
It's our nature to preserve and assume that the tears and the cracks and the breaks are a threat to us. But remember, our nature is fallen. It can't be trusted. You cannot trust your instincts. And that's one of the biggest lies that I think a lot of us buy into. We trust our instincts. We believe what we feel. And that's the dangerous thing to do as a Christian. Because you are greater than what you feel. You are greater than what your nature says you are or can be. So if we've trusted in Jesus, we have a new nature, a new mind, and a new outlook. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul made this statement. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, as in they they sound foolish. Again, you tell someone who is not a Christian, or even someone who is a Christian but not educated in the Bible, you walk up to them them and say, hey, you you shouldn't worry about when bad things happen. You should actually rejoice. They're going to think you're crazy. And a lot of Christians think that's crazy, and a lot of Christians just make up lies to believe that, 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 that that's not the case, right? That, you know, hey, if, God's, if, if, God's, if I'm following Jesus, then there's not going to be any of that stuff. And they have to just completely rip out these pages of the Bible. And they're costing themselves what God actually wants to do in our lives. And that's why this is so important to preach and so important to read and so important to understand. Because this is the secret to finding the life that Jesus wants to give you. This is the secret to taking hold of true life and to quenching that thirst that you have and to relieve yourself from a quest for what this world cannot give you. So it sounds like folly to the natural mind, but to the spiritual mind, it's the answer. And you and I have the mind of Christ, don't we? That's what the scripture says there. We have the mind of Christ. So it doesn't have to sound crazy or foolish or outlandish or that's nonsense. It should make sense to us, or it it can. So as we enter into chapter 5, if we haven't yet adopted this new mentality, if we are still seeing life the old way through a glass that's foggy and dimly lit, we won't accept what God is trying to do. But it's a shame because we're not a lost person. We're a saved person. We know better. We can be better. So we've got all this running through our minds, and either you are still struggling to get your arms around that, which is okay. We'll, We'll try to help you along. Or if you've put your arms around this and you're willing to believe what God is trying to say to you through this message or through the previous message, then this next passage is so comforting. So comforting. Notice how, again, Paul uses this phrase, for we know, in chapter 5, verse 1. Do you, and the question is, do you know? And if this is hard for you to say boldly and confidently, then that tells me that you need to back up a little bit and relearn or reread and restudy and reprocess what we previously talked about. But Paul doesn't have any trouble. We know that if our earthly home, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I mean, Paul says this with confidence, but most of the world doesn't have this same level of assurance. I mean, that's not not a hard thing to, to imagine. Paul says we know that if our earthly home is destroyed, that we have something better. Now, listen, most of the world doesn't know that. The, the people he would have been writing to, they wouldn't have known that, or they wouldn't have believed that confidently. Most of the world today doesn't believe that confidently. And a lot of Christians don't believe that confidently, because you can tell by how nervous they are about what is going on in this life. I mean, think about it. Just the premise. If our earthly home is destroyed, that scares us, doesn't it? 
Now, when he says home, he's talking about our body, our lives, but you can take that and extend that as far as you want to, as in everything that encompasses your earthly life. He's talking about the body, but it means everything that we have in this life. Just the premise of our earthly lives being destroyed, that's pretty dreadful, isn't it? I mean, 99% of the people that hear this and will ever hear this, that's a doomsday situation. I mean, and even for us who believe in eternity, to us it's a bit, un bit unsettling, isn't it? I mean, the word destroy, I don't really need to define it, but just to make it even more uncomfortable for us, destroy means torn apart, left undone, seemingly unsalvageable. I mean, destroy is not a good situation. Destroy is what you see on the news when a hurricane tears through a town and you can't even tell there used to be a town there. It looks like farmland with rubble growing out of the ground. So if chapter 4 seems beyond your faith, chapter 5 must be impossible. But here's what I think is odd about this. Most of us, all, of, all, all Christians, all Christians who still struggle with this, every Christian confesses, at least, or believes, that they're not going to live here forever. Every Christian, by virtue of their confession, it's that, hey, we're not going to live here forever, and heaven is our eternal home. Yet our lives suggest that we are far more invested in earth than we are eternity. Why is that? Because we're scared of seeing this life destroyed, because we feel like it's all that we have, even that we know better. We know better. It should cause us to really question whether we really believe or not. Paul's whole reason as to why we should be unfazed by troubles and totally brought, brought into what God is doing and working in our lives through brokenness is that we've already confessed that we can't save ourselves. We've already confessed and we sing and we pray and we do all these things at church that confesses we're not here forever. This is not our forever home. This should be obvious to us, but it's not. And I'm not being hard on you. That's just reality, right? It's hard for us to still accept this. Even though we still believe, we've confessed that we're going to die one day and go to heaven. But when we talk about it in this gritty detail, it's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? But I want you to lean into this promise. Remember last week, it was all about leaning into this and getting, allowing your fears to be confronted and leaning into what may be troubling to you. Lean into the promise that Paul is laying. You know, when I say lean in, I mean, have you ever been on a high, uh, been high up somewhere and, and you don't even want to get close to the edge because when you lean toward the edge, it makes you more afraid? As a Christian, when you get around a subject that you're uncomfortable with, but it's God's word, you've got to go to the edge and you've got to look down. You've got to look down and lean as far as you physically can because you need to get a hold of this. This is so important. Paul makes the comparison here. We know that if this tent is destroyed, we have a house waiting on us. Now, you can't get more extreme than those two points of contrast. Tent versus house. A tent, we know what a tent is. It's a temporary dwelling place. Nobody dreams of living in a tent. Now, some people have to, right? Right? But you go camping in tents, you don't live in tents, unless that's the only option for you, and nobody wants that to be the only option. Tent versus house. One is temporary, one is a permanent dwelling. And he's wanting the Jews to think back to the wilderness period. What did the Jews do for 40 years? They lived in tents, but then they crossed the Jordan River and they lived in homes. Homes that they didn't build. See the picture? <laughs> 
They were in temporary tents, then they went into permanent homes. But here's what Paul's wanting you to think about here. The best we get in this life is a tent. Do you see that? It may be a two-story full basement, bonus suite above a three-car garage, but it's still a tent. You hear me? It may be a lake or a beach or a mountain place, but it's still a tent. It may have the nicest cars, the nicest toys, and bank accounts upon bank accounts to back it up. It's still a tent. You see where he's going with this? You may look good, but you're still a jar of clay. Your life is still a tent. We don't want to accept that, do we? We, we want to imagine that we're more than that. We will be one day, but we're not yet. No matter how much we have in this life, no matter how great we are, we are just a jar of clay. We are just a tent. Now that's humbling, isn't it? But that's a necessary humble. The only permanence, the only security, the only solid rock is the house that we've yet to enter into, as in the body that we're going to get one day in heaven. But, but think about what Jesus taught about this same subject. Jesus notices that the people that are religious Jews, they aren't, they aren't getting any confidence. They're not getting any assurance out of that. And that's why he invites them to follow him. But when, when it got to the nitty-gritty, when he was really calling people to, to make a choice between religion and him, remember that famous conversation he had the night before he was arrested? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, I always want to make the emphasis that it's the Father's house that should be our attraction. But notice when he says mansion, those mansions are in the Father's house. Now, I don't know if that's a physical building or not, but hey, he says house. He doesn't say heaven. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. As in the place God has for you in his house is a mansion compared to whatever you've got down here. Oh, if some people have a lot down here, that means the, the room in your Father's house is a mansion compared to whatever you've got on this side. And that's a big thing, right? In my Father's house, there's a place for you. It's a mansion of a suite for you. I, I, I don't know what it looks like. The Bible doesn't describe it, right? This is just a big place, a, an, an awesome place that God has made for you. And if he, said, he says, if it wasn't so, I, I, wouldn't, have told, I wouldn't tell you this. And if, if, I wasn't mean, if I didn't mean this, hey, I wouldn't be leaving y'all because I'm leaving y'all to prepare this place for you. So this is a, a big promise from Jesus. Well, again, we read this at funerals. This is a big promise. He, he goes on to say, And if I go to a very place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. But a lot of us don't know the way. And Thomas, in, in this text, says, Jesus, we don't know the way. And a lot of people think the way is by being successful, accomplishing good things, doing good things, being the right kind of person. But Jesus says, whoa, 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 that's not the way. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you want to get to God, you've got to come through me, as in... If we want our lives to matter, it's through a relationship with Jesus. He is the way to a future that never fades away. So the contrast in this text that Paul has got in front of us is we've got a tent now. We've got a mansion waiting on us. 
There's no middle ground. This is the extreme contrast. This life from our flesh to our treasures is a tent compared to what God is preparing for us, which is a mansion in comparison to what we've enjoyed here and now. If letting go of this life seems like too much to ask, what do we do with this text? What a beautiful invitation God is giving us in, in, in this passage. I mean, we have a home made with the hands of God. The emphasis here is not a literal house. It's, it's that we have a resurrection life, a resurrected body, a glorified body, a body that cannot die, and a life that goes along with it. There's this tent, and then there's a house. Which one are you living for? Are you living trying to keep your tent from blowing away and you're tying it down and you're staking it off and you're pulling this ropes tight and you're building, you're trying your best to keep that little tent from, from, from falling and, and from, from being overwhelmed? You've got insurance upon insurance upon insurance on the tent, yet the tent isn't going to last. So are you living for the tent or are you living for the house? That's the question. Verse number two, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven in this tent in this body in this flesh we groan we long for something better this world tells you to numb that longing to put something else in the place of that or to try to counter that longing with something of this world right well i got something out of the fridge but it didn't it didn't satisfy my hunger so let me get something else right i got to this didn't work, so let me try something else. This verse tells us our greatest desire, our greatest desire is to see our flesh restored to life, be clothed in resurrection life. We groan and earnestly desire to be clothed with a house not made with hands. Verse three and four, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked for, who, for we who are in this tent, in this flesh, in this life, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life, as in our mortal lives might be taken by eternal life. If indeed having been clothed, we shall be found naked. Our greatest fear is that we will be found naked, that we'll be exposed in our nakedness. You, you, see, you see what this matters in terms of how we're preparing for eternity? When we stand before God one day, it's just like Job said. Naked I came into this world, naked shall I return. On our own, we're naked, we're unclothed, we're exposed. Listen, from Jeff Bezos to Elon Musk, whoever, all the money in the world... All the rich people we idolize, when they stand before God one day, they are naked in their flesh. Nothing in their hands they bring. The wealthiest of preachers and the wealthiest of Christians, right, from the Pope to Joel Osteen and all the multimillionaire pastors in the world, they will stand in front of God naked. So will you, so will I, so will all of us, all of us. Nothing we've done in this life that we've made and we've shoved in our tent, that stuff is not going with us, right? From the richest to the poorest, the successful to the failure in every category, we are going to stand in front of God as the tents we really are. And the only thing that's going to save our lives 
is the life of Jesus that transfers us from this tent to a mansion. Do you see the difference? You see why it's a big deal that we buy into this? Because if we buy into the illusion and the fantasy that this tent is worth trying to save and this life is worth trying to shore up, then we waste our life on something that's not going to pay off. And Christians, we're, we're guilty of this as much as the lost people are, aren't we? The only thing that's going to make a difference is if our mortality is swallowed up by the life of Jesus. As in there's nothing we can do that saves it ourselves. So when you stand before God one day, because you will, because we all will. When we stand in front of Jesus, the questions on our mind, two questions that are going to be on our mind. Were we clothed with the life of Jesus? And did we put our faith in him and set our hope on his promises? That's all that's going to matter. And your earthly life reflects it. Were you clothed in the life of Jesus? Or were you naked in your flesh? Was your faith in Jesus? Were your hopes on Jesus? Again, the only things that will carry over are the treasures that we sent ahead. Why do you think Jesus always said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth? Because when you stand in front of God naked, those treasures aren't going to be with you. What did he say? Put your treasure in heaven, which is, which is code word for give it all away. People, people thought Jesus was crazy when he told the richest man that ever lived that, that he met to sell everything that he had. Jesus, are you crazy? Do you think that guy would actually do that? And Jesus said, if he wants to save his life, he will. And he didn't bat an eye. But remember, Jesus was a homeless man who had no money. He had the nerve to tell that rich man, give it all away if you want to get with me. And that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Jesus was the poorest unclothed by this world, yet he had the house not made with hands waiting on him. But the richest was just a tent, naked and exposed. You know what your biggest fear is? Being found naked one day in front of God. Our flesh is paranoid. Our flesh knows its destiny. Sin tries to prevent us from turning to God and getting true clothing. Sin wants to keep you naked. Sin wants to keep you unclothed. The groaning we experience and feel, that longing for more, is one for permanence and assurance. We want that assurance and that permanence that only God can give you. Jesus made that promise in John 18, John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because you're going to have my life in you. Because I live, you will live also. So what was he telling the disciples? Listen, y'all are going to feel like orphans. Y'all are going to feel like, y'all are going to be on the run. You're going to be wanted men. But don't worry, you're not going to be orphans when it, in the kingdom of God. You're going to be clothed with the life of my resurrection spirit. He goes on to say in verse 23 that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. As in you won't be exposed. You won't be naked. You won't be unclothed. You will have the presence of God in your lives. As you love the Lord and you love those that he's put in your life and you do what he's called you to do, you will not be phased by the things that may be going wrong. You'll be focused on what you're doing for your heavenly home. And if we buy into this, if we believe this, Jesus says, I give you peace. 
my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But listen, if you let this world be your peace, you will be troubled, you will be afraid, and you will be undone. And you will feel like an orphan. It's a big deal, isn't it? This is the core of our faith as Christians. We only find what we desire through a relationship with Jesus, who is our guarantee. Verse 5, Now he who has prepared for us, prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or a deposit, similar to what we talked about Sunday, a down payment of our eternal life. So we have that life that he's talking about here. We have that deposit of eternal life. Paul continues to be confident in verses 6 and 7. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now that sounds like a bad thing. Paul, why, why are you saying you're confident? Home in the body absent from the Lord. I mean, that sounds like a, a bad thing. I don't want to be away from the Lord. But, but what Paul is saying here is that we don't have to worry. We're, we're going to worry. We're going to feel afraid and, and worried. But he says, hey, we haven't stepped into this next life yet. We're still vulnerable. We're still in the flesh. So we're still sensitive to the things of this world. But we don't have to be taken by those things because as we are still in this body, we are separate from where we will be one day. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. This is, this is so crucial. And I would venture to say that about 90% of Christians never get this to the way that they can. If we ever feel uneasy or uncertain, afraid or anxious, you've been there, haven't you? I'm there right now. I'm there most of the time, right? Are you there with me? If you feel uneasy and uncertain and afraid and anxious, if you feel overwhelmed, that's because we are still away from the Lord in the physical sense. You know why you still have those fears and those thoughts and those worries? It's because you are still in a fallen world. So it's crucial that you learn, and this is a learning process, it's crucial that you learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, this is the most contrary thing to your nature you will ever try to do. But this is the key to overcoming these things that try to tell you down. John says in 1 John chapter 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. As in, we're going to feel in our heart, in our flesh, we're going to feel like things aren't okay. We're going to feel like, okay, I, God's, God's word says I'm clothed in life. God's word says I've got the spirit of uh, his spirit. God's word and God's spirit tell me I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. This is going to work out. But in my flesh, sensitive to the world and the things of this world, I don't know if I feel like I'm where I need to be. It is the hardest thing for any of us to do to not walk by our feelings. It goes against everything natural to us. We want to wallow and we want to suffer in our fear and uncertainty. That's what our nature is just made to do. This is not the mindset that we have without dedication and devotion and concentration and focus. It takes work to get this. 
You know why Jesus taught you to pray like this? When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. You know why he taught you to pray that way? Because if you have your eyes on what you see, your feelings will overpower your faith. He says, go in, your, go in a room, as in get away from the world, shut the door, close the windows, close the blinds, get in away from this world, pray to your Father who is in secret, as in you can't see him, sometimes you don't feel him. But when you buy into the fact that you can't see him, yet he's still there, and when you pray to him, even when you don't feel like he's there, and you, buy, you pray to the God who is in secret, the God who is in secret will award you openly. We need to take our eyes off this world completely so that our faith can overpower our sight. So while we live on this side, we will, ne we will walk by faith, not by sight. That is so hard to do. Our eyes see this world plunging into sin and darkness and despair. Our eyes read the headlines. Our eyes see the landscape politically and economically and socially and on and on and on. Our ears hear it and our flesh feels it. We cannot live by sight, sound, or senses. But the problem is you are a human being and that's how you live. By sight, sound, and senses. That's the, that's the problem, isn't it? You cannot, you cannot settle for that. This isn't a mind trick. This isn't psychology. I'm not trying to, 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 ther you know, to, to therapize you into believing this. This is the Spirit of God. This is something that God has to do in your life. You've got to buy into Him and trust Him and believe Him. This is not something that you just click your fingers and it happens. This is not something that you pray one prayer and it happens. This is a way of life. This is a walk that you live day by day. This is a process that you've got to trust God and exercise your faith day after day after day. You cannot, you cannot live by what you see and what you hear and what you feel. You have to allow the Spirit to lead you by faith. Faith in who Jesus is and what he's promised and how we are clothed in him. So we are confident because, yeah, things aren't okay. Yeah, things don't feel okay. Yeah, things don't look okay. Yeah, things don't sound okay because we're not where we should be yet. We're not in heaven yet. So when the devil says, look around, listen, feel, you say, I'm not going to walk by sight, sound, or sense. I'm going to walk by faith. Our hope is in our redemption that is still yet to come, that carries us against the tide of sight, sound, and senses. Verse number eight, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Yes, that's what we want. We desire that. We dream of that. We pray for that. We wait for that. One day we will be present with the Lord. And everyone who dies, in, 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 the moment they pass away, they step into life and they are with the Lord. But until then, until then... We walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 9 and 10, and we're done. Therefore, we make it our aim. Now, now do you know how Paul, do you see how Paul kind of walks back his, his big confident and, and knowing and, and certainty talk? Because this is a process that 
some days you're going to be here, some days you're going to be there. Some days you're going to be closer, some days you're going to be farther. We make it our aim, as in none of us are going to do this perfect every day. Yet we aim towards it every single day. And if we don't buy into this from the very beginning, that it's a tent versus a house. This tent is going to fade away. This house is going to be, that house is our eternal home. We're aiming towards that. We're believing on that. We're focused on that. We're pursuing that. So we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Because here's what Paul says, and here's what we know. That if he is what we desire the most then we have to live after the way he's called us to. Because if we want to be close to him, the only way we feel that closeness now as we will one day in heaven is to walk in his will. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So, I think this is the obvious culmination of this message. All of our lives lead up to this moment. What really matters? What is most essential to your life? Our lives in this tent, in this jar, are all about preparing for the house not made with hands, new and glorified bodies we will receive one day. What we've done prior to will be reflected in the eternal future, though. So knowing that, if our hearts long for him the most... His presence the most, we will only be at peace when we seek Him and live to please Him. Pleasing Him is not pleasing us. There's a difference. Clearly, He's our future hope. He alone has made a way for us to be saved. Apart from Him, we're just a jar of clay. We're just a tent in the desert. Our hearts long for much, much, much more be clothed in his life and be led by faith. So what is your goal? What should be your goal every single day? To be found clothed in the life of Jesus and to be led by faith. To have Jesus' life means you've said goodbye to this life. You've said goodbye to this world. You've said goodbye to the things of this world and you want something greater because you know that's the only way you're going to be clothed with immortality. To walk by faith means you've said to your senses and to your sight and to the sounds around you that they do not control you. They cannot and they never will. Let not your heart be troubled. Jesus says, I am the way. Church, I don't, think there's a better, I don't think there's a better message of hope. Not what I just preached, but what this book says. I don't think there's a better message of hope. If you want peace, if you want that life that God says you can have, read this chapter again and again and again. And don't get up from your knees until, you, until you, your eyes are open and you say, I, I, I see it. I see what I got to do. And it's not going to happen overnight. You make it your aim every single day. Walk by faith, not by sight. This tent, not going to be here forever. But there's a house not built with hands waiting on you and me in heaven. So let's set our eyes on that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise 
the promise of eternity. God, so many people in this life, they hear about potential destruction, potential death, and it devastates them because all they have is this life. And a lot of us, we think this is all we have. This is the best it gets. Lord, thank you for confronting us with this message that the best we get in this life is a tent. The best we'll ever be is a jar of clay. Yet you love us and you made a plan for us to take hold of new life and better life and, and we can see this life matter for eternity. And we can be clothed in the power of Jesus, in the life of Jesus that isn't obsessed with the things of this world but is focused on the things of the next world. Lord, as you tear us loose from this world and you fill us with the promises of heaven, I pray that we might would focus on you and live for you and understand that by pleasing you, we, we not only honor you, but we set our own hearts at peace and our own souls at rest. God, help us all to walk by faith and not by sight, to make our aim every day our heavenly home that's prepared for every one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.